Hallelujah, yeah. Oh, my life may all forsake me, and death may overtake me. But if I am with him, I have no need to fear. You just hide me in thy bosom. Tell us, time of life is over. Rock me in the cradle of thy love. Oh, defeat me. Hell, I want no more. Then you take me to your blessed home above. You just make my burden lighter. Help me to do good wherever I can. Oh, let thy presence thrill me. Our loving kindness fill me. Then you hold me in the hollow of thy hand. I was traveling through Illinois when I was invited to stop and sing at a memorial there in the little town of Mount Olive. Now who of note in American history is buried in the cemetery in Mount Olive, Illinois? I'll give you a hint. It was a woman. It was the Union Miners Cemetery. Do you have it yet? Mary Harris, Mary Harris Jones, Mother Jones. It's hard for the mind to encompass a life that embraced the presidencies between Andrew Jackson and Herbert Hoover. Why, when Mother Jones was a little girl, there were people still alive who remembered the Revolutionary War. And she died on the eve of the New Deal. Her millinery shop burned down in the Chicago fire, and she had heard Abraham Lincoln speak in person. Mostly, though, Mother Jones was the miner's friend down in Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia. Well, the men had be organizing the underground workers, the miners. Mother Jones had already organized their wives and led them over the snow-covered game trails down into the hollows, where, armed with mops and brooms, they drove the scabs out of the coal pits. Now, Mother Jones wasn't an organizer, she was an agitator, which meant often enough she was hated as much by the organizers as by the bosses. One time, Mother Jones was out in Colorado at the great Ludlow strike. Now that was a strike to enforce the eight-hour day, which the state of Colorado had made a law, but they couldn't enforce it because Rockefeller owned the militia. Now, the governor promised not to send the militia into the coal fields, but he lied, and he did. Mother Jones was in the union hall down there at Ludlow and word came that the militia had entered the coal fields. Well, she leapt up and she screamed, let's go get the sons of bitches, and she stormed out. She didn't look to see if anybody was following her. Nobody was following her. She just flounced up the road alone and confronted the militia. And that was the year that President Theodore Roosevelt called Mother Jones the most dangerous woman in America. And she was 83 years old. That's some kind of dangerous.
Mother Jones. Mother Jones, indeed. This is The B, and you're tuned to Mutiny Radio, and it's Saturday morning, and it's 10 o'clock, so you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. My name is Bill Morgan, a.k.a. The B, bringing you labor news, history, opinion, commentary, interviews, you name it, we got it, you one-stop labor shop on Saturday morning. Hope you're all doing well. Hope you all had a good week. The children are at it again. Toys in the attic, playing at war. It's hard to say who's right and who's wrong. Everybody's wrong on this one, I think. <sighs> the politicians love war. The economists, the economy... Loves War. We played, uh, last show we played uh, Bob Dylan's Masters of War. We'll look for that one again. People, you have to understand this. People get rich off wars. People who sell weapons to both sides are not concerned about the right and the wrong of it or the good and the bad of it. It's money. And of course, since 1945 now, something else. I mean, this is like the idea of a a nuclear war, war on steroids. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh. It's more like these people are crazy. Anyway, this is the B, and this is Labor and Love Radio. 2781 21st Street is where I'm sitting right now. And I hope sometime you'll come down and see and experience Mutiny Radio. We've got art, we got video, we got comedy, we got radio, you name it. Beautiful set of uh, historic collages by one of our programs here. The guy who follows me is Scott Walker. <clears throat> also a graphic artist. But come on down. Uh, we've got room for more more people here. For a hundred bucks a month, you can have your own show and have your own voice and tell people what you think they should hear. Labor and Love Radio... Or we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table where you work, you're on the menu. Hope you know that. We'll look at our credos in a minute, and there's a good one there that talks about people who say they're not interested in politics. Well, we'll see about that. Never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. What have we got for you today? Just on the other side of International Women's Day. 
made a point to say that uh, we'll just play women's music here, but looks like Utah Phillips sneaked in there on the back of Annie DeFranco singing about Mother Jones, one of the great labor leaders. And if I look her up in the labor cards, let's see what we get. We've got several strong women here. Mary Mother Jones. Known as Mother Jones, Mary came to the U.S. from Ireland. In 1870, all four of her children and her husband died of typhoid fever. Mind y'all, think about that now. All four of her children and her husband died of typhoid fever. What did she do? Did she commit suicide? No. Did she lose all hope and drift into... Nothingness, mourning forever, the loss of her family, no. She decided to support the labor movement and travel all around the country. From that point on, she traveled all around the country talking up the labor movement. She worked for the United Mine Workers, the Industrial Workers of the World, in 1903 to protest the evil of child labor. She led a parade of children, the Children's Crusade, to demonstrate in front of President Theodore Roosevelt's house at Oyster Bay. Oyster Bay was a An upper-class community, a vacation community for a lot of people with a lot of money. Roosevelt had a house there. She showed up there with her army of children. Roosevelt uh-huh. didn't go out and even go out and meet her. But her demonstration led to talks that led to amelioration of some of the worst points of child labor realize we didn't have a child labor and a national child labor law until 1937. Today, child labor is still rife in the United States and in the world. 1921, there was an out-and-out strike, a shooting strike between the Blair miners in West Virginia and Pennsylvania. And the federal government, the army was called out. Mother Jones went and preached to the miners and told them to put down their guns and try to settle, get their rights. Anywhere there was a labor movement, Mother Jones was... There, at least in spirit, Mary Mother Jones. What have we got for you? Let me run some names past you. Nicki Minaj, I'm looking for Nicki Minaj. Singing Age Ain't Nothing But a Number. We'll see if we can find that one. And Devorah. Brittany Howard turned on 
Hernan for me by my good friend Earl Joseph Coleman. Sadly passed away this last year. We got Pink. We heard from Nina Simone with her rendition of the Breck Fylde song, The Black Freighter. Um, can't remember. Um, Rosetta Tharp, the queen of the blues guitar, one of the real heavy influences. Black gay woman who played beautiful guitar. And so much more. Radio Labor, Labor History in 20, in two. Radium girls, women who were sort of uh, sacrificed to the nuclear uh, arms industry. Labor history in two minutes. How's wise and what's of ULP strikes unfair labor practices? We've got several articles from our Facebook page, Labor and Love Radio. The Labor Beat, we call it. We got Radio Labor. Five inspiring labor leaders. And the messed up story of the Radium Girl. And through it all in the background, we'll be playing, uh, as we habitually do, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. Okay, welcome to Labor and Love Radio, and we'll start out with our worldwide review of this last week in labor on Radio Labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, March 11th, 2022. I'm Mark Polacek. In the program this week, a special report on how global unions are helping labor organizations confront technology multinationals and using technology themselves. Plus, the Labor Start report about union events and singing... Give us 
This is Radio Labor. Global unions are helping labor organizations confront technology and build cooperative action between countries. That is a central conclusion of a recent research report entitled Challenging Global Tech Giants, the Critical Role of Global Labor. It was prepared by Carmen Ludwig and Edward Webster. Ms. Ludwig is the International Secretary of the German Education Union. Mr. Webster is with the Southern Center for Inequality Studies at the University of Witwatersrand, South Africa. I asked Mr. Webster what countries he and Ms. Ludwig researched and what was happening in the countries that they found of interest. We were interested in how technology is changing the world of work, and particularly digital technology. And we chose Kenya and Uganda, two countries in East Africa, because we, we saw it as a, an example of the way in which technology could be used and also abused. And in the case of Kenya and Uganda teachers, there has been a introduction of a a company called Bridge International, which purports to offer children low-cost school education. It's a private company, and what they're doing is they using the computer or the tablet to substitute for teachers. And in the process, they are, if you like, deprofessionalizing teachers because they're using a sort of standardized curriculum developed in the United States. And the uh, teachers' union, the uh, Kenyan National Union of Teachers, with the involvement of the Education International, which is the International Association of School Teachers, a global union, if you like, they ran a campaign against the privatization of education because it turns out that the standards uh, were lower and the curriculum was inappropriate and the Educational International did research on this and then they uh, established a campaign, a global campaign against the privatization of education and the local union challenged this attempt to sort of depersonalize the teachers. That's an example, if you like, Mark, of an abuse of technology, disadvantaging workers. The other example we chose was Uganda transport workers. And that, in some ways, is a similarity because what you've had in Uganda and indeed throughout Africa is privatization of public transport. And in place of your public transport buses, they privatized and we in, they ended up with these motorcycle taxis which they call locally border-border drivers. And with the help of another global union, in this case the International Transport Federation, they provided them with support in their attempt, and it was a local initiative, uh, by the Amalgamated Transport Workers Union of Uganda to develop their own app. So they were using, if you like, you know, new technology uh, not to disadvantage the union, but in fact to build the union and they were successfully able 
to develop a union app to facilitate contributions and membership of the, the union. But what's exciting about this particular example is that they were able to rebuild the union because under the impact of privatization there had been a massive retrenchment and the union had gone down to a few thousand, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 members. And by drawing on these informal workers, these are these casual guys who ride the um, motorcycles, by drawing them in, if you like, crossing the divide between the formal and informal economy, they were able to, to rebuild the union and expand it to 100,000 members. So this is an ex- a remarkable example of union revitalization. I also talked to Ms. Ludwig about the research report she and Mr. Webster prepared. One of the conclusions in the report was for the need for unions to develop societal power. I asked her to define societal power. Societal power is one of the power restraints unions can mobilize, and basically it can be used to contest issues around the notion of social justice. So societal power can be expressed in two ways. For one, by influencing the public discourse, and second, to build coalitions with other social groups, such as social movements or parents' organizations. And that was particularly relevant in the campaign of Education International against privatization and for public education. Um, In Uganda and Kenya, the education unions mobilized their members around the issue of good public education, and they also started to uh, with their governments. And this created a strong frame that resonated with many civil society organizations, for one in the region, like the Global Campaign for Education in Africa, and also on the global level, which was very important, where more than 170 civil society organizations, for example, wrote an open letter to investors donor agency and the World Bank annually, urging them to stop funding British international academies. And um, so that, that had an impact. And also Education International was mobilizing for protest action in front of the World Bank, supported by education unions and civil society uh, organization. And um, as a result of that uh, ongoing pressure, in 2020, the World Bank's private sector arm, IFC, decided to freeze any investments for for profit primary and secondary schools, which has been a big success, which still needs to be maintained in the future. Your research addressed how new forms of transnational activism could be facilitated. What are some of the new forms and how could they be implemented? Yes, the research has been conducted in exchange with Education International, and it builds on the extensive research that EI has done on the issue of privatization, which I think was very important because up to that point that EI started this research, to my knowledge, there wasn't much research done on the impact of privatization of education in the form of companies entering the sector like big international academias. So it also created a lot of attention for the issue and the negative effect that privatization has. And our interest was to look at the campaign and to reflect on the role that global union federations can play to contest the use of technology and to support their members in the process. 
And it's important to know that global unions can reinforce but not replace the activities of local unions on the ground. We saw in both case studies that it was crucial to involve members in the campaign and in the process, which has also helped to build the organization and the union's associational power. In the case of the transport workers in Uganda, it was the informal workers' initiative to develop that the, the two organizing apps. And in the case of um, Uganda, the education sector, the mobilization also depended strongly on the involvement of the local unions. You can find more about the report challenging global tech giants, the critical role of global labor, on the Education International website at ei-ie.org. Now here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top stories section included links to coverage of more union statements regarding the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the disaster capitalism response to the pandemic, which is resulting in further privatization of healthcare around the world, and the arrest of hundreds more Cambodian workers who were exercising their right to strike. We also carried news from Canada, where university professors are on the march about fuel price protests by public transport workers in Eswatini, who and what is behind the surge in organizing activity in the United States of America, and the safety hazards faced by tea garden workers in Bangladesh. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found lots and lots and lots and lots of stories about the ways in which International Women's Day was marked around the world. Included in that list was the Joint Labor Start International Domestic Workers Federation webinar on how domestic workers are organizing against workplace violence. More striking were the stories about the repression of attempts to organize International Women's Day events by workers, as was the case in Afghanistan. A small sample of the stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week includes a report that election workers in the United States are increasingly concerned about their safety as they face hugely increased levels of harassment and threats of violence for doing their jobs. We also carried a story from Australia on the lack of preparation workers have experienced as their employers demand their return to pre-COVID-19 work arrangements and the collapse of a coal mine shaft in India that trapped dozens of workers below ground. Our photo of the week is of Canadian hotel workers as they fight an employer profiting from the pandemic at the expense of workers, most of them migrants and women of colour. Labour Start hosts online solidarity actions at the request of unions around the world. This week, we'd like to highlight urgent appeals for online solidarity with trade union activists in Colombia, Cambodia, Lithuania, and Pakistan, who are facing everything from anti-union employers through sacking and imprisonment to assassination. In just a few seconds, you can do your part in these struggles by sending a solidarity message. Look for details of these and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackheader from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. On March 8th, unionists all around the world celebrated International Women's Day. As we go marching, marching in the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill gray, a 
And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can listen to our daily newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
day he gets richer I get poor somehow Making a living by the sweat of my brow
rocking, aiming and banging, pull it, pointing and flaming. To everything changes by any means, claiming, cocking, aiming and banging, pull it, pointing and flaming. By any means, claiming to everything changes, cocking, aiming and banging, pull it, pointing and flaming. To everything changes by any means, claiming, cocking, aiming and banging, pull it, pointing and flaming. By any means, claiming to everything changes.
Okay. That was uh, Devorah. And who have we got here? The messed up truth. Okay, that was uh, Devorah and her surrealistic Western music. She's doing things her way. Before that, we had the labor anthem, Bread and Roses, and Hazel Dickens from West Virginia, singing about by the sweat of my brow. Listen up a little here to uh, little Miles Davis. We'll be right back. don't know what kind of president John Kerry would have been. We, we don't know if he would have been good. We have no idea. But we know that George Bush is going to fuck it up. <laughs> we are totally prepared. I met John Kerry at the very beginning of his campaign. And talking to him is like talking to an ant. You know, the tree people from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> should have affordable health care. There's so many people really hate George Bush. Like, I just think he's just fucked. Like, he's so, he's so fucked. I want to send him poppers and Crisco. is by far the, the most embarrassing president in history. He... <laughs> Never fails to embarrass. Like, after the tsunami, he didn't really help the victims out very much because, well, why should he? They don't have oil. <laughs> All they have is batik. <laughs> and he don't look cute in a sarong. So he put together the, uh, the Tsunami Task Relief Force, headed by Jeb Bush, which is like sending Danny Minogue. <laughs> That's his thing. He picks bad people, appoints bad people, like these fucking Supreme Court judges he wants to appoint. They make, they make Clarence Thomas look like Angela Davis. Or like, or like the, the fucking new guy, um, uh, the whole like John Bolton thing, the John Bolton for uh, ambassador to the UN, worst guy you could, worst guy you could nominate for that job. Everybody fucking hates him. It's like, it's like sending Eminem to Grand Marshal the Gay Pride Parade. <laughs> Picks bad people, like Condoleezza Rice, who I saw speaking at a military base and she was wearing these shiny, shiny black leather boots and um, a dominatrix outfit, and it was so dirty. <laughs> oh, George, you've been a very bad president. 
was so non-consensual for me to see that. <laughs> Crazy, at least it was some reprieve from the fucking Pope, which I had had enough of the Pope, all right? <laughs> I... The Pope, the Pope who, who really held on. He really held on. He wouldn't, he wasn't going anywhere. He's just fucking hanging on. Like, and the press could not wait for him to die. They're just like waiting outside that whole Saturday when he, he died, they were, but he wouldn't die all day. They're just waiting like, he's not dead yet. But he might be when we come back from this commercial. who was so sick that he couldn't even come to the window. Like, he was so sick, all he could do was manage a blah! <laughs> but even that blah was anti-gay. You know, like... <laughs> the Pope talked so much shit. The Pope was castigating the media for making gays look normal. Yeah, you a real good judge, a normal, with your gold dress. I'm afraid a little bit about how angry people are about politics, and I get in a lot of trouble sometimes. Um, I, I did a benefit for an organization called MoveOn.org, and... And that was the week that MoveOn was embroiled in controversy because they had a couple of ads on their site that equated Bush with Hitler. And so I did the benefit and I said, George Bush is not Hitler. He would be if he applied himself. And for this, I was deluged with hate mail from the right wing. So much hate mail. But none of it was about political discourse. None of it was, Miss Cho, I believe you're being unfair to our administration. None of it was like, like that at all. It was all, goo chink cunt. Go back to your country where you came from, you fat pig. Go back to your country, you fat pig. Go, go back to your country, you fat dyke, fat dyke, fat dyke. Go back to your country, fat dyke, fat dyke, fat dyke. Jesus saves. <laughs> Enchanté. <laughs> well, I can't go back to my country because I was born here. I'm already in my country. <laughs> the only person that has the right to tell you to go back to your country is a Native American. think Fat Dyke is an insult. <laughs> to me, it means I'm gonna eat fried chicken and pussy. <laughs> That's why I brought wet naps.
since I so wholeheartedly believe in free speech, I took their emails and I posted them on my website, and I included their return email addresses. And a lot of people emailed me from work, so it had all their work information, their home telephone number, and their cell number, and their social security number, and their pin number, and what kind of ice cream they liked, and all this shit. And I didn't realize this, but there are people out there who really, really like me, and they are pissed off to begin with, and they need half a reason. Oh, I wish somebody would try to fuck with my girl. <laughs> so in posting these emails, what I had done is I had inadvertently activated Al Gaeta. That is a sleeper cell you do not want to wake up, yo! They started Al Gaeta training camp, where they offered Pilates. And I was getting apology emails flooding in so fast, I couldn't believe it. I'm sorry I called you a chink goo cunt. I didn't mean it. <laughs> I'm very sorry. You have a right to your opinion, and I'm very, very sorry. Okay, Margaret Cho there, a little comedy from Margaret Cho um, about President Bush. That's two presidents ago, three presidents ago. Still right up to date. Okay, listen to a little uh, Miles Davis now, and we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. Uh, let's see, played music there by Devora and her surrealistic Western music. The uh, accompanying um, video is made up of all kinds of short, maybe one, two second shots of Devora doing various things in a motel all by herself. And uh, 
Her song says, maybe, you know, I'm, I've dreamed that maybe I'm doing everything on the wrong side. Laura. Then, of course, we had Margaret Cho with her stuff about George Bush, the Pope. Um, and it is Labor Day. I mean, it is uh, Women's Day. This is a story about the Radium Girls. If you've heard of them, fine. But you probably haven't. These were people who were sort of sacrificed to the uh, nuclear industry. Fine in recent history, yet it has been nearly forgotten today. What started as a fairly good job for a group of poor women, though, soon turned into a nightmare. This is the messed up truth about the Radium Girls. Radium was discovered in 1898, and it didn't take long for entrepreneurs to see the potential value in its luminescent properties. A few years after it was discovered, William J. Hammer mixed it with zinc sulfide and created a paint. While he didn't patent the invention, Tiffany and company did. The new paint was wildly popular in Europe first, and the people who worked with it would glow as they walked through the streets at night. It wasn't until 1914 that radium-based luminescent paint started to be produced in the United States. By 1921, the main manufacturer had already expanded a few times and moved, changing their name to the United States Radium Corporation and patenting the name Undark for their paint. Other companies started popping up as well, using names like Luna and Marvlite for their paints. They weren't just making paints, they were using those paints too. U.S. Radium hired scores of girls and young women, some as young as just 11 years old, to paint watch dials with the glow-in-the-dark radium-based paint. To make sure the dials got a good coating, the girls were encouraged to put the paintbrush between their lips and twirl it into a point. It was the best way to truly get precise numbers and brush strokes, but with each lick of the brush, they were swallowing radium, which we now know is radioactive. It wasn't long before U.S. radium was even getting military contracts to paint watches and instrument panels, and that meant more work for the girls. Unfortunately, that also meant more exposure to radium. The workers had been assured that the paint was harmless, so they often played games with the paint. It was common for the girls to paint their fingernails and teeth in order to enjoy the glow-in-the-dark properties. Paint our faces up and put mustaches and a couple of girls painted their ears. And Years later, Harvard physiologist Cecil Drinker did a study to see just how much radium the girls were actually covered in. He discovered that workers would be so covered with the paint and radium dust used everywhere in the plant that they would completely glow. And all along, they were assured it was safe. It's worth noting that this wasn't just a case of a corrupt company telling their employees their working conditions were safe, at least not at first. Radium was thought to be super healthy. In fact, it was often marketed as a cure-all. The radium craze started in earnest in 1904 when L.D. Gardner began marketing a radium-infused health water he called Liquid Sunshine. Belief in radium's healthy benefits was rooted in a massive misstep in logic. Early experiments using radium to kill cancer cells had been a success. If it could kill cancer, the assumption was that it could kill whatever else was ailing you. Real doctors started experimenting with it as a cure for things like tuberculosis and lupus, while quacks started marketing their own so-called cures for everything from acne and baldness to impotence and insanity. People drank radium water and brushed their teeth with radium toothpaste, and radium cosmetics were all the rage. Children played with toys painted with radium, and performers on the New York stage danced and twirled in costumes that glowed. Radium was in such high demand that prices soared. By 1915, a single gram cost what would be around $1.9 million in today's money. Luckily for consumers, that meant many of the products didn't contain real radium. 
The radium girls weren't so lucky though. Very slowly, the workers began getting sick. Some started suffering from chronic exhaustion. For many, it started with their teeth. One by one, those teeth would start to decay and rot. When they were removed, their gums wouldn't heal. In some cases, the jaw would simply disintegrate at the dentist's touch. Bad breath was common. Skin became so delicate that the slightest touch would tear open wounds. Ulcers formed for some, and those that were pregnant bore stillborn babies. It was a variety of symptoms, and when the girls started looking for recompense, that became a huge problem. Attorneys for U.S. Radium argued that with all of these different ailments, they couldn't possibly have the same underlying cause. Unfortunately, there's no way to tell just how many dial painters there were and how many died terrible, painful deaths. Of those we know about, many dial painters were typically in their 20s when they became really and truly ill. They were young women like Margaret Looney, who grew so weak her fiance would pull her around in a wagon. And when she got so bad and pulled her up to where we used to have the picnic, she couldn't walk, so he just pulled her. Bones crumbled, limbs were amputated, spines were crushed under their own weight. The girls became anemic, bedridden, unable to eat. The pain was constant, and in the late 1930s, enough were dead or dying that they got national attention. U.S. Radium first tried to blame the girls' illness on an outbreak of syphilis, and it was years before the girls got their day in court. By that time, many testified from the same beds they would eventually die in, and they became known as the Society of the Living Dead. Companies didn't just try to blame the terrible illnesses on other causes, they absolutely took an active role in trying to cover up the truth. Margaret Looney was one of a family of 10 and would cover herself and her siblings with the radium paint. It took about six years for her to reach the end, and when she did finally collapse, she was at work when it happened. She was taken to a company hospital and her family was told she had been quarantined for diphtheria. She died in the hospital at just 24 years old. Her death was swept under the carpet, and it would come out later that doctors had been hired to find out what was wrong with the painters as early as 1925. Those doctors had assured Looney and her co-workers that they were perfectly healthy, despite all the evidence to the contrary. The lawsuit started in the mid-1920s, but it was shockingly difficult to even find an attorney to take the girl's case. Why? When Radium Painters sued U.S. Radium in 1927, they were told they had passed the two-year statute of limitations for complaints. They didn't testify until 1928, and months of delays prompted the newspapers to pick up the story. Those women accepted an out-of-court settlement, and when Ottawa-based painters from the Radium Dial Company tried to sue in 1935, they ran into the same problems. They, however, refused to settle. It was another two years before their case was heard in court, and by then, Catherine Wolf Donahue, one of the lead plaintiffs, had already collapsed at a previous hearing. She gave her testimony from her sickbed, and photos were plastered all over the country's newspapers. They won their case, but it was a hollow victory. The girls were often saddled with massive medical bills, and by the time medical bills and legal fees were paid, the Radium girls got next to nothing for their pain and suffering. Even those that won an annual stipend didn't get much since they didn't live long enough to collect. There was another byproduct of the trial. The girls who were part of the so-called Society of the Living Dead weren't aided by their community. They were shunned. Writer and historian Kate Moore says that in spite of the fact that these were young mothers, wives, and girls who were dying, the communities they lived in just didn't want to acknowledge what was happening to them. After talking to locals and reading countless documents, she found that it was an overwhelming belief that they just needed to be quiet about the whole thing. Why? The jobs paid very well at a time when work was scarce. It was the Great Depression, after all, and locals were afraid that if the Radium girls won their case, that work would go away. 
Not all of the Radium girls died young, but those who did survive struggled with predictably awful health issues. Take Mae Keen, who died in 2014 at the admirable age of 107. She was hired on as a dial painter in 1924. Fortunately for her, though, she didn't like it. When she was taught how to point the brush with her lips, she was revolted by the taste of the radium paint. Keen said she only worked there for a few days when she was called into the office and asked if she would like to quit. She said yes. However, over the course of her life, she suffered from chronic health problems, including ones that sound eerily similar to those suffered by the girls who died, bad teeth and migraines, and two diagnoses of cancer. As it turns out, dying women and some guilty verdicts couldn't stop the radium paint industry. Catherine Donahue weighed less than 60 pounds when she died before Radium Dial finished appealing their case before the Supreme Court. In 1934, their president, Joseph Kelly, was kicked out of the company, but Radium Dial wouldn't be the last company he opened. After Radium Dial went out of business, Kelly simply moved to a building down the road and reopened as Luminous Processes. He hired a workforce from among the girls who had been put out of work when Radium Dial closed, and he kept them painting for a long time. It wasn't until 1976 that Luminous was fined by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. That commission found that Luminous had been exposing their workers to radiation levels 1,666 times higher than regulations allowed. Assets were shuffled, Luminous closed, and the lawsuits that continued into the 1980s went largely unpaid. For just $67, you can make as many videos as you want. The Radium Girls weren't just sick, they were very literally radioactive. Molly McGee was exhumed in 1927 in the hopes that her bones would give still living Radium Girls the evidence they needed to win in court. Reportedly, when her coffin was lifted out of the ground, her body actually glowed. That wasn't entirely surprising considering her bones were found to be highly radioactive. Ottawa, Illinois was known as Death City throughout the 1930s. In 1987, the documentary Radium City tried to show just how long-lasting the effects were in a very graphic way. When one man headed into the Catholic cemetery where many of the Radium girls were buried, the Geiger counter he carried goes nuts. Their remains, six feet down, are still radioactive. With some of the girls, precautions were even taken. Margaret Looney and Catherine Donahue were buried in lead-lined coffins. And yes, devotees of radium-based health products are just as radioactive. Industrialist and golfer Eben Byers was the poster child for a drink called Radiothor and drank several bottles of it a day. Holes formed in his skull, his jaw fell off, and his bones began to crumble. He died in 1932 and was so radioactive that he was also buried in a lead-lined coffin. If you think the legacy of the Radium Girls ended when the companies using radium-based paint closed, you'd be sorely mistaken. After Radium Dial closed, the building was converted into a meatpacking plant. After the meatpacking plant closed, it became a farmer's co-op, and it was finally torn down in 1968. The rubble was used as fill around the city of Ottawa. The building that housed Luminous didn't fare much better. For years after the plant closed, it was also used for storing meat. Eventually, 16 separate sites around Ottawa would become classified as Superfund sites, requiring long-term intensive hazardous waste removal. NPR Illinois says that many have been cleaned up, but as of 2018, there was at least one site that still remained a highly radioactive and terrifying legacy of the Radium Girls. Check out one of our newest videos right here. Plus, even more grunge videos about your favorite stuff are coming soon. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Okay, there's the uh, Radium Girls. And we can see, I mean, these cases, this whole process wasn't really settled until 1986. And the radium industry had really got going at the turn of the century.
And as this video indicates, the companies fought every step of the way. Accused some of the women of syphilis, having syphilis. Amazing. It's utterly amazing. Okay, how about some labor history, some other labor history? I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. You may know that March is Women's History Month, but did you know why it takes place each year in the month of March? It all goes back to today in labor history. The year was 1857. That was the day that hundreds of women working in New York City's garment industry went on strike. The women demanded better wages, safer working conditions, a 10-hour workday, and equal rights. In the years that followed the historic strike, March 8th became an important time for women workers to rally in the city. So on March 8th, 1908, a crowd of 15,000 women workers in New York took to the streets. The marching women demanded the right to vote, an end to sweatshops, and a halt to child labor. At the International Socialist Congress in 1910, a German woman named Clara Zetkin proposed March 8th be declared as International Women's Day. Women from 17 countries agreed, and over the years, the day continued to hold a special place for women in the labor movement. Women from Bangladesh to South Africa to Venezuela have held demonstrations for workers and civil rights on this day. By 1980, President Jimmy Carter declared the week surrounding March 8th Women's History Week. His declaration read in part, too often the women were unsung and sometimes their contributions went unnoticed. But the achievements, leadership, courage, strength, and love of the women who built America was as vital as of the men whose names we know so well. In 1987, the week was expanded and March became known as Women's History Month. And it all started with garment workers who were not afraid to stand up for their rights, leading the way for countless numbers of other women who have bravely followed in their footsteps. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1879. A steamship named the Colorado docked in St. Louis, Missouri. On board were black migrant workers on their way to Kansas in search of jobs and a better life. They were the first arrivals in what became a wave of black migration out of the U.S. South known as the Exodusters. Nearly 20,000 black workers and their families left Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, and other southern states to make their way to Kansas. They were fleeing the oppression of the Ku Klux Klan and the racial violence of the South. A depression in the 1870s had made matters even worse. White planters sought to offset their losses due to the depression by charging black sharecroppers higher interest rates to farm their land. Some black workers began discussing leaving the South. Benjamin Papp Singleton, a former slave and abolitionist, became a leader of the Exoduster movement. He called for black workers to make a great exodus from the repressive South. Handbills declaring, Ho for Kansas, circulated among Southern black sharecroppers. It was a long, tough journey up the Mississippi River and then west. A reporter from the St. Louis Globe Democrat visited the families of the first group to arrive in St. Louis. He found 280 men, women, and children, whom he described being in utter want. 
local St. Louis black residents organized food and relief for the hungry travelers before they finished the final leg of their journey. In all, black migrant workers purchased 20,000 acres of farmland in Kansas during the 1870s. Later, the search for jobs and freedom from violence and oppression would bring workers to cities like Chicago and Detroit as part of the Great Migration. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. You've likely heard the recent news stories about the proposed Keystone XL pipeline. The national media continues to report as labor, energy groups, environmental, and Native American activists all debate the proposed pipeline. But did you know that on this day in labor history marked the beginning of another oil pipeline project? The year was 1974, when work began on the Trans-Alaskan Pipeline System. In the early 1970s, the United States faced an energy crisis as international oil prices skyrocketed. The Alaska the Alaskan Pipeline Project was started as a means to address the crisis, although many in the environmental movement protested the idea. Tens of thousands of workers flocked to Alaska. Towns along the oil line boomed overnight. The population of the town of Valdez more than quadrupled from 1,500 to more than 6,000 in just one year. A two-bedroom log cabin without indoor plumbing could rent for as high as $500 a month. In Fairbanks, demand for space by workers was so high, workers had to rent bed space. In addition to the high costs, workers also had to endure the harsh cold. Todd Honer, a pipeline laborer, described the experience. When you're working at night on the north slope, the wind is usually blowing, the snow is usually blowing, communications is marginal, and the smoke from the diesel engines, the cold, the chaos. It was surreal, and we continued that for 10, 12 hours. And I am sure by the end of every night, everybody wanted to quit and just go home. Many more workers did not even get the chance to brave the cold, as more workers arrived than there were available jobs. Those who had arrived too late to land a job had to return home disappointed, while others never made it home at all. During its construction, the Trans-Alaskan Pipeline took the lives of 32 workers. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. The year was 1912. The Lawrence, Massachusetts textile workers' strike had worn on for over a month. More than 20,000 workers had walked off the job. Most of them were young women. Nearly half of those on strike had been in the United States less than five years. Each strike communication had to be translated into as many as 25 languages. As often happened at the turn of the 20th century, violence broke out on the picket lines between strikers and the police with one protester dying from an errant bullet and another losing her life from being stabbed by a soldier's bayonet. Despite these difficulties, the women stayed true to their call for bread and roses. Supported by the industrial workers of the world, textile workers in Lawrence, Massachusetts had walked off the job to protest wage reductions. But they were not only striking for bread, they were also demanding respect and dignity and a better quality of life. 
They wanted bread, yes, but roses too. As the strike wore on, some of the women decided to send their children out of town and away from the growing danger. In what became known as the children's exodus, more than 100 children were sent to New York City. Upon arrival in Manhattan, the children were greeted by cheering crowds of thousands of supporters. The children's exodus won sympathy for the striking women. In an attempt to stop the news of the strike from spreading, on February 24th, the Lawrence City Marshal decided to stop 46 children from leaving for Philadelphia. Police beat mothers trying to help their children board the train. One woman suffered a miscarriage. Across the nation, people were outraged. Congress launched an investigation into the strike. The bosses had finally gone too far. And on this day in labor history, the striking women finally won most of their demands. And their cry of bread and roses would go on to inspire the labor movement for generations to come. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Okay, there's some of our historical stuff. Um, labor movement, remember, you, in every land and every clime, there's always workers who are standing up to make their lives better and their work better. Anyway, wanted to talk a little about our labor beat, but let's listen to these stories about five inspiring labor leaders. Okay, first one is Grace Abbott. Grace Abbott's achievements are primarily in three fields, children's rights, immigrants' rights, women's rights. She accomplished more than many presidents have in their whole career. Nineteen seventeen Appalachian Mountains. Grace Abbott was inspecting coal mines in West Virginia. As head of the Federal Child Labor Division, her mission was to enforce a new law to keep children under 16 out of dangerous work environments. I learned of a very tragic accident that had happened that very day. A boy under 14 had been killed while working in one of the mines. Children were working in factories, in coal mines. The factory owners didn't have to pay them as much. Their fingers were smaller, so there were certain things in factories that kids could do that an adult couldn't do. And that is still an era where it's really not respected that children have rights. Abbott's efforts to end child labor were met with staunch opposition from families who relied on their children's earnings and business owners who relied on their cheap labor. Grace's achievement was a general societal recognition that children are citizens and that entitles them to certain basic rights, such as education and health and so forth. Justice for all children is the high ideal in a democracy. We must emancipate children from the industrial load that was put upon their shoulders. Grace Abbott was born in 1878 in Grand Island, Nebraska, to a Quaker family of activists. Her father was the only lawyer in town. He had been a soldier in the Union Army and an abolitionist. The mother was a very important leader in the suffrage movement. 
She was friends with Susan B. Anthony, Lucy Stone, both of whom stayed in the Abbott's house. My mother would say to my sister Edith and me, even if you are little girls, you can be suffragists too, because it is right and just. After graduating from college in 1898, Abbott taught high school in her hometown. When Grace was still in Nebraska living at her parents' home, she was taking correspondence classes in history and political science and so forth. Clearly, she was aspiring to something. I always was happy in Nebraska, but there isn't much opportunity for a girl in a small city, and it seemed inevitable that I leave. In 1908, at age 29, Abbott left to attend the University of Chicago, where she planned to study law. But she ended up residing at Hull House, co-founded by future Nobel Prize winner Jane Addams. It was one of the first among hundreds of settlement houses nationwide working to address social problems and provide services to new immigrants. Women in the settlement movement were among the most important Americans involved in the establishment of social work as a profession. Hull House was right there in the middle of an area full of Greek, Italian, Eastern European, Jewish, and so forth. Rotting stables were everywhere, and the alleys were indescribably filthy. The tenements were tiny, sordid rooms with no windows, no electricity, no water. They were beyond description. Despite the fact that women didn't have the right to vote, they played a critical role in working with immigrants in settlement houses organizing for the poor, fighting for equal rights in the workplace. My name is Cristina Jimenez, and I'm a social justice organizer. United We Dream is the largest network of immigrant youth across the country. We work towards uh, racial justice and dignity for immigrants and all people of color. When I think about my own experience growing up undocumented, for me, really, I became a community organizer to survive in this country. It was a choice of either fighting for my existence or to live in the shadows with the fear that you could be detained and deported any, any minute. During a time of widespread anti-immigrant sentiment, Abbott served as director of the Immigrants Protective League from 1908 to 1917. She defended asylum seekers from deportation, testified in court against the trafficking of women, and lobbied against policies meant to exclude non-English-speaking immigrants. A great means for enriching our national life is lost if we neglect all but the Anglo-Saxon in our population. In 1921, Abbott became director of the U.S. Children's Bureau, making her the highest-ranking woman in government. By the mere fact of her existence as a woman achieving at that level, she was being a champion of women's rights to prove that a woman could have these jobs and excel at them. Abbott was instrumental in enforcing a 1921 Maternity and Infancy Act, the first federally funded social welfare program. The mortality rate in that period was horrifyingly bad. And part of the Shepherd Tanner Act that Grace was focused on was a raising of public awareness a public education campaign about the very basics of why are all these babies and women dying in childbirth. 
Abbott's programs provided midwife training, opened health care clinics for new mothers and their babies, and advocated for breastfeeding. But she met with deep opposition in conservative circles. Grace was attacked violently, verbally, throughout her career. I mean, there are statements off of the floor of the Senate or the House calling her a menopausal maniac or someone with a Mussolini complex. But it was not only coming from the men. There was a group called the Woman Patriots, women who were opposed to women having the right to vote. Grace had a lifelong battle with those organizations. If we sometimes pushed when you did not want us to push and elbowed our way in when it seemed to you that a lady ought to stay in the background, I can only say we may still have to do some pushing and shoving to get the necessary attention for the needs of women and children. It makes me think about all of the women within United We Dream that are also challenging and disrupting the status quo every day by marching, by speaking out. And many may argue that we don't have power because we're not voters. But yet, just like the women of the progressive era, they still shape the culture and the politics. And we are doing the same. Abbott resigned from the Children's Bureau in 1934, but she continued working on drafts of the Social Security Act until it was passed the following year. She was the only trained social worker at the top levels of American government at the onset of the Great Depression. And her work led the way to the creation of the Federal Emergency Relief Effort, also of the Fair Labor Standards Act to combat child labor, and of the Social Security Act, which continues to greatly benefit millions of Americans. Abbott became editor of the Social Service Review and taught social work at the University of Chicago, where her sister Edith was the first female graduate school dean in the country. Having never married, they lived together until 1939, when Grace Abbott died from cancer at age 60. Not only she pushed against the odds and disrupted the status quo, but also starts breaking notions of how far women can go in leadership and how far can you put yourself out there publicly. Perhaps you may ask, does the road lead uphill all the way? And I must answer yes to the very end. But if I offer you a long, hard struggle, I can also promise you great rewards. She was a leader in the Subscribe for more amazing stories of unsung, unladylike women every Wednesday. Just hit the subscribe button in the window. Eighteen ninety-eight, New York, New York. 16-year-old Rose Schneiderman worked as a seamstress in a hat-making factory. Many of the garments were produced in sweatshops. There was no such thing as an eight-hour day. If the employer said, I need this number of garments produced by the end of the day, people just stayed and worked. When a fire destroyed the factory, the employer forced Schneiderman and her fellow workers to buy new sewing machines out of their own paychecks. 
It just infuriated her and set her on her course towards seeing that unions were the only solution. We were helpless. No one girl dared stand up for anything alone. It dawned on me that we girls needed an organization. Rose Schneiderman was born in 1882 in Savin, Poland, to Jewish parents. The family moved to New York when Schneiderman was about five years old in one of the largest waves of immigration in U.S. history. Two million or so East European Jews started migrating in about the 1870s into the 1920s. Most of them came because of the economic possibilities in the garment industry. Like many Jewish immigrants, the Schneidermans took up residence in the tenements of the Lower East Side. These apartments were crammed with people. Disease was rife, very poor sanitation. It was a pretty grim life. In 1903, Schneiderman formed an all-women's chapter of a hatmaker's union and later joined the newly founded Socialist Party of America. In the garment industry, men and women worked together which had a very profound impact on the consciousness of women because they could see they were producing the same number of garments as the male worker next to them, and they were getting a lower pay. In 1905, Schneiderman led a citywide nonviolent strike against pay inequality that resulted in raises for women hatmakers. Each boss does the best he can to squeeze his workers to the last penny. We must stand together to resist. This brought her to the attention of a group of white, middle-class, mostly Christian women who had already formed the Women's Trade Union League. And they saw she was a natural leader. Women have always been on the front lines of the labor movement. It's just that we haven't always been recognized in that leadership role. My name is Ai-Jen Poo, and I'm the director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. I started my organizing in the 90s, and I just thought this growing low-wage service economy was where many immigrant women, especially women of color, were working. And so if we were going to change things, we would have to start there. And we came together in 2001 across all these different communities to start organizing. Schneiderman's efforts to organize women in the garment industry helped build momentum for the 1909 Uprising of the 20,000. They were demanding wages, predictable hours, and some level of control over the work environment. Wealthy members of the Women's Trade Union League, popularly known as the Mink Brigade, picketed alongside garment workers to help curb police violence. They get on the front pages of the newspapers, and their cause becomes everyday news in the city of New York. The 11-week strike resulted in most garment factories signing protocols to improve work conditions and safety standards. However, some of the factories didn't sign the protocols. One of the worst industrial accidents in U.S. history was a fire at the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in 1911 that killed nearly 150 garment workers. Most of the women died because the doors were locked from the outside. 
and they jumped out the windows. For Roche Schneiderman, the fire was not just an abstract tragedy. She knew people who had been killed. This is not the first time girls have been burned alive in the city. Every week, I must learn of the untimely death of one of my sister workers. Too much blood has been spilled. Realizing that working women needed more than unions to gain political power, Schneiderman co-founded the Wage Earners League for Women's Suffrage in 1911. It was an effort to take the issues of socialism and feminism to say that the two have to be pursued together. She gives this powerful speech, which gives the women's labor movement the imagery of we're working for bread, our wages, but we're working for roses, our human dignity. What the woman who labors wants is the right to live, not simply exist. The worker must have bread, but she must have roses too. Help give her the ballot to fight with. Her rallying cry remains one of the most indelible mottos of the American labor movement. Her enemies, essentially the manufacturers and the conservative trade unionists, saw how effective she was and tried to smear her. New York State granted women the vote in 1917. Through her suffrage work, Schneiderman met fellow labor organizer Maud O'Farrell Swartz. They began a 25-year friendship. Historians have been pondering what the nature of that relationship was. Many single women who didn't marry were involved with other women and relationships, which later generations may say, ah, they were lesbians. But I don't think anybody really knows. In 1918, Schneiderman became president of the New York branch of the Women's Trade Union League and its national president in 1926. She served in both positions, organizing women workers until her retirement in 1949. The next really important development in her life was she met Eleanor Roosevelt, which brings Rose Schneiderman in contact with Franklin Roosevelt. And he turns to Schneiderman as one of his advisors. When he became president of the United States in 1933, FDR appointed Schneiderman as the only woman on his New Deal Labor Advisory Board. She realized that the issues of labor and workers' rights cannot be settled outside of the political arena. It wasn't enough to negotiate with the boss of this factory or that factory. It required systematic restructuring of society. Schneidman played an important role in shaping New Deal legislation during the Great Depression, including laws for minimum wage, the eight-hour workday, and the right of workers to unionize. It thrills me that I had a part in bringing about monumental changes in the lives of working men and women. From 1937 to 1944, Schneiderman served as New York State's Secretary of Labor, where she advocated equal pay for women and protections for domestic and service workers. When labor laws were put into place in the 1930s, farm workers and domestic workers were explicitly excluded. She played a role in 
in ensuring that laws protected more groups of people. Right now, we have passed legislation in nine states and just introduced a national domestic worker bill of rights into Congress that will offer some of the basic protections that the rest of us take for granted. Real investments in training, protection from sexual harassment and discrimination, paid time off, including national holidays. It will be a challenge to pass this law, but the beautiful thing is that it is inspiring workers all over the country to stand up and get involved. In 1961, Schneiderman attended the 50th anniversary commemoration of the Triangle Factory Fire. She died in 1972 at age 90. Rose Schneiderman wanted to change the world. And the kind of America which develops out of the New Deal really owes her. It was women like Rose Schneiderman who transformed jobs during that industrial moment, where people were literally dying in factories and created an era of generational prosperity. That's what organizers do, democratize power. I know from experience it is up to the working people to save themselves. And the only way they can save themselves is by a strong working class movement. Story there of a couple of labor leaders. There are more. There's a couple of more that we should talk about. And uh, we will definitely do that on next week's show. We'll continue that. I want to I talk about a woman named... Biddy Mason, African-American woman, born into slavery and given as a wedding gift, okay? Fíjate. To a Mormon couple in Mississippi. In 1847, at age 32, Biddy Mason was forced to walk from Mississippi to Utah, tending cattle behind her master's 300 wagon caravan. Robert and Rebecca Smith were the uh, was the married couple. After four years in Salt Lake City, Smith took the group to a new Mormon settlement in San Bernardino, California, in search of gold. Biddy Mason soon discovered that the California State Constitution made slavery illegal, and her master planned to move them all to Texas to avoid freeing them. With the help of some free blacks she had befriended, she and the other slaves attempted to run away to Los Angeles, but they were intercepted by Smith and brought back. However, when he tried to leave the state with his family and slaves, a local posse prevented his flight. Biddy had Robert Smith brought into court on a writ of habeas corpus. She, her daughters, and the ten other slaves were held in jail for their own safety until the judge heard the case and granted their freedom. 
Now free, Mason and her three daughters moved to Los Angeles, where they worked and saved enough money to buy a house at 331 Spring Street in downtown Los Angeles. Betty was employed as a nurse, midwife, and domestic servant. She was one of the first black women to own land in the city of Los Angeles. She had the gumption to use part of her land as a temporary resting place for horses and carriages. And people visiting town paid money in exchange for the space. This could be considered the first parking lot in Los Angeles. To be followed by many more, of course. Knowing what it meant to be oppressed and friendless, Biddy Mason immediately began a philanthropic career by opening her home to the poor, hungry, and homeless. Through hard work, saving, and investing carefully, she was able to purchase large amounts of real estate, which provided her enough income to build schools, hospitals, and churches. Her financial income her financial <clears throat> fortunes continued to increase until she accumulated a fortune of almost $300,000. In today's money, $6 million. Her most important achievement is the founding of the first church in California, the first AME church in California. Biddy Mason. You need to find uh, something for, about Biddy Mason. Right? Biddy Mason. Very important in the history of. Okay, let's see. We're looking on the labor beat now. We've got about 10 minutes to go. Iceland tried a shortened work week. Take a look at this one and see how it came, came about. Last year shattered the myth of people needing to trek into the office every single day. Iceland, similar to other Nordic company, countries such as Sweden, we're, pardon me, we're on the port side website offers generous social services for its citizens. The country has a strong health care system, income equality, and paid parental leave for mothers and fathers. Iceland differs from its neighbors as the country has longer working hours. Between 2015 and 2019, Iceland conducted test cases of a 35 to 36 hour work week without any cause for a commensurate cut in pay. So they're going to work fewer hours, right? And get paid the same. Results were analyzed by Autonomy and the Association for Sustainability and Democracy. And here are the highlights of that study. The trials were an overwhelming success, and since completion, 86% of the country's workforce are now working shorter hours or gaining the right to shorten their hours. 
see, that's a little different. I'm assuming if you shorten your hours, you get less money. Let's see, productive productivity and service provision remain the same or improved across the majority of trial workplaces. Worker well-being dramatically increased across a range of indicators from perceived stress and burnout to health and work-life balance. Trials also remained revenue neutral for both the city, council, and government, providing a crucial and so far largely overlooked blueprint of how furniture trial, future trials might be organized in other countries around the world. Icelandic trade unions subsequently negotiated for a reduction in working hours. Nearly 90% of the working population now have reduced hours or other accommodation. Ah, okay, read that port side. And um, here's one about free Anna Delvey. Okay. Um, this is about Inventing Anna, if you've seen the uh, video series Inventing Anna. About a woman who basically conned her way, pretended to be a German heiress, and lived large for about four years. She would get loans from banks due to her personal magnetism and uh, energy and... Uh, Ability to act as if she came from money. She steals a private jet. She uses a real heiress's yacht without permission. She stays in some of New York's fanciest hotels without paying. She knew how to act rich. Her sense of entitlement was without title. Anna Sorkin wasn't unusually pretty, charming, or even nice, yet people were drawn to her. Okay. Anna Sorkin, read that on the port side as well. It's okay, it's about six minutes till, till the 12th hour, till noon, still waiting for the appearance of Scott Walker and Flat Black Plastic. I would like to read a couple of our credos before we say goodbye. We have Lawrence Ferlinghetti's poem, which we read. Robert Reich, as he says, your reminder that the richest 1% own half the stock market and the richest 10% own almost all, 92% of it. It's a game for the rich and the wannabe rich. So when Trump brags about the stock market, he's not talking about the economy that 90% of Americans inhabit. He's talking about something else, another world. Um... Utah Phillips. Kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. They don't have a little sister coughing their lungs out in the looms of the big 
mill towns of the Northeast. Why? Because we organized. We broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. We have child labor laws. They were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. They were fought for, they were bled for, they were died for by working people, by people like us. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs. That's why I tell these stories. No root, no fruit. See what else we got here. Well, it's getting to be time to go. How about one more of our credos? Immigrants. Here's the one I referred to earlier. So you're just not that into politics. Oh, okay. Your boss is. Your landlord is. Your insurance company is. And every day they use their political power to keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. It's time to get into politics. Hello? Time to get into politics. Okay, let's see if we can find our going out song. Um, <laughs> from the Japanese classical guitarist Kerry Miraji. We got uh, quite a show for you today. Okay, we got E, F, G, H, I, J, K. And Harry Miraji. There we go. This is the B reminding you that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table where you work, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. And there he is, Mr. Flat Black Plastic. So I'll hand the ball over to him. And remember, have a good week and good work. See you next Saturday.
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> International banking, diplomatic cables, nuclear missile launch codes all rely on unbreakable encryption. What if these codes were no longer secure? That nightmare scenario seems to be a reality. A shadowy underworld syndicate is auctioning off access to the world's encrypted secrets. The only plausible explanation for this ability? Someone has achieved the holy grail of code-breaking quantum computing. Veteran CIA agent John Clooney must track down the perpetrators and retrieve this technology for the U.S. government, and it's personal, as the Enigma brokers have already cost the lives of his fellow agents, perhaps including his partner. John Wessex's The Enigma Brokers is the first book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shoot. From time to time, I hear the thought of juice. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! I was just leaving the theater. Convertible. 1969 gold Cadillac with the white interior. Oh. And, and I started to do some thinking. Around in it on the freeway, and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black plastic. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday, noon to two. On the freeway. Good feeling. I'll tell you. Can I see? Jesus. I am petty, rebellious, and adolescent. And I will cut the Henry. Yeah. Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your, uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. Has John Clooney's friend and ally become a dangerous enemy? 
Private investigator Anton Gruber has been CIA agent John Clooney's trusted aide. Clooney may have questioned Gruber's taste in cuisine, but never his loyalty, until Gruber double-crossed him. Escaping with his life, Clooney is sidelined while his superior attempts to discover how Gruber was compromised. The investigation delves into Gruber's astonishing past, from his unpleasant days as an East German border guard to life as a narcotics agent, from his time in the tango clubs of Buenos Aires to a trip up the Amazon in search of Nazi gold. John Wessex's The Prague Deception is the third book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon. Hey, Mutineer Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we gotta serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz, Latin, gospel, hip-hop, and traditional folk ballads. Great stuff. Check it out. Labor and Love is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Serve somebody. Meals on Wheels is dedicated to fostering independent living for San Francisco seniors by providing hot, nutritious meals delivered to their homes. They're committed to fostering independent loving for as long as possible. For more information, please call Meals on Wheels at 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Are you looking for local handcrafted leather goods? Look no further than Skin on Skins, a local mission leather working shop. All original pieces handcrafted for you. Jackets, belts, purses, jewelry, everything made out of leather. You need your bicycle seat fixed? You want it in cool leather? Under can do it. You have a motorcycle that you want to fit out with side bags and cool stuff? Talk to Under. Go to SkinOnSkins.com. That's S-K-I-N-O-N-S-K-I-N-S.com. You just went to Folsom Street Fair and you don't have enough leather? Go see Under. Everything is handcrafted and understated quality. Fine leather handcrafted goods for all of your needs. He also does fixes. Maybe you love that jacket. He'll put the zipper back in. Talk to Under at SkinOnSkins.com at 20th and Mission. Check them out at SkinOnSkins.com. Volunteer for the San Francisco Food Bank. The San Francisco Food Bank relies on volunteers like you to help sort, package, and distribute healthy food to people in need in San Francisco. Each year, over 22,000 people contribute thousands of hours to fighting hunger in our community. This support will enable the SF Food Bank to distribute 43.5 million pounds of food this year. 
enough for 93,000 meals every day. But they can't do it without contracts. Visit www.sffoodbank.org slash volunteer. Again, www.sffoodbank.org slash volunteer to find out how you can help. assassins are already dead. A shadowy group of killers for hire is eliminating world leaders, crime lords, and CIA.